So we are reading from Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest happily after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king going to make war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. This series of lessons, we have been focusing around a list of three attributes, three characteristics that should be evident in the life of a disciple. And we have repeated, because repetition is a part of learning, that a disciple is someone who is following, serving, and growing. Now, I'm going to review what we've covered so far just for a couple of minutes. We had our youth service last weekend, so it's been a couple of weeks. But we, we, we begin with the fact that having faith in God and in His Word leads us to an opportunity to be born again of water and spirit. It is not automatic, but it leads us to that opportunity and Jesus said that we must do that if we want to enter the kingdom of God. To repent of your sins, to be baptized in Jesus' name, to have those sins washed away and to be filled with the Spirit of God is the beginning of a new life or we sometimes use the expression it is the new birth, which means the same thing. It is the only way to be saved. And when we say that, we don't say that regretfully. It is a wonderful experience to be born again of water and spirit. But then what we do with that new life is crucial. We should never return to the old life that we needed saving from, but rather we should begin to walk with Jesus. And this is what we are talking about when we are talking about becoming a disciple. We talked about how a disciple is someone who is following, and that when we consider the word follow or follower, we understand that a disciple is a person who follows Jesus who has begun a relationship with him and is deliberately going his way. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And the three points in that verse tell us that we need to be hearers, there needs to be knowledge or relationship, and there needs to be a following or a responding correctly to the things that we have heard him speak to us. Amen. The sheep are listening for his voice. The sheep place more importance on his voice than any other voice, and hearing the voice of Jesus is their priority. The psalmist said in Psalm 63 and 8, that my soul follow, followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholds me. We follow hard, it means we cling to him, and we do so through the power of his right hand. A disciple is also someone who is serving. Because we are His children, because we love Him, we choose to be His servants. We are not forced to serve. We are not having our lives removed against our will, but we are choosing 
to be his servants because when we understand what he has done for us, we belong to him. He paid the price for us. 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. That's inside and out. What we do matters, who we are matters. Being a servant of Jesus is an act of your own free will. If you feel like you are being forced to serve the Lord, there is something wrong with either your relationship, your understanding, or both. Amen. Our identity is that we are His children. I am His son. But my choice, because I love Him, is that I will be His servant. So we are identified as His children. We serve Him out of love. We considered in that lesson that as, as family members, particularly as parents, we serve our families by choice because of love. We also spoke of how we can serve God through offering our time, our talent, and our treasure. And this morning we are going to consider the last of these three defining points about being disciples. And that is that a disciple is someone who is growing. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need to grow. Don't tell them you need to grow up. That might be a little bit rude. But we all need to grow. And as a part of this series, we have established that when we are born again, we begin a new life. New life means that there is a beginning point. And from that point forward, there needs to be development and growth. Every parent here knows that when your child is born, there are measurements that are taken. When that child comes into the world and everything seems to be okay, they begin to measure that infant, and the two obvious things they measure are the length and the weight. It's interesting with babies, they talk about length. They don't talk about height because little critters can't stand up yet. So they talk about length and about weight. And then after so many weeks and so many months, you make these scheduled visits to the health nurse or to your doctor, and they take those measurements again. Why do they take them again? They're looking for progress. They're looking for growth. They're looking for development. And each child is unique. We're all born at different sizes and weights and we have different rates of growth. So when they take those measurements, they are looking for an outcome that is within a certain range. They're looking for a range that they consider acceptable, that they consider healthy. If your child is born at two kilos, then they're not expecting it to be at four at the first checkup. And if your child is born at four kilos, then congratulations to the mother that had that child. But it's, it's already further along the weight chart. But they are looking for measurements, things they can say growth and development is taking place within an acceptable range. And because we are all different, we will all grow to different heights and different builds and different weights. They're not looking for exactly, not every six-month-old child has to weigh X point X number of kilos and grams. But they want you to fit within something that tells them things are going okay. That's what they are looking for. Amen. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, why? That you may grow thereby. It is okay to be a brand new baby when you're first born again as a Christian. That is okay. That is how it should be, just as it is naturally. We do not expect newborns to contribute a lot to the household, except perhaps in costs. 
but we don't want them to stay there. Amen. As we walk with God, there are measurements that He takes to see if we are progressing within what He considers to be the normal range or a certain range that He considers to be healthy. So if we have been around for a while and we are still drinking from the bottle, something is wrong. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the first two verses. He said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes or babies in Christ. He said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto or up until this point, you are not able to bear it, and neither now are you able to bear it. He was saying there was, there was a time for milk, but there needs to be a time where you're able to digest things that have a bit more substance to them. We don't feed newborns T-bones. Now, there's nothing wrong with a T-bone, there's nothing wrong with a newborn, but it's about the stage of life that a child is at. Amen. The language that is being used in these scriptures from First Peter and First Corinthians is using the human life, the growth cycles of the human life as a parallel or to paint a picture for how we ought to grow spiritually. And another parallel that Scripture uses to communicate this concept is that of being trees that should grow and become fruitful. Matthew 7 and 17 says, Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn or cut down, cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. So it follows that if we are a spiritually healthy tree, and I think there was a Sunday school song, Brother Thomas, about being a blooming tree or something back in the day. We won't all join in and sing that this morning. But if we are a spiritually healthy tree, we will produce good fruit. Now, part of growing is about stability. But we never stop growing. I was thinking about this. I was driving the other day down Nangara Road past the pine plantations. And I was thinking about our growth as believers. You know, when, when a plant is very, very small, it's just green, it's just a little sprout, changes in the weather and the environment are reflected in that very quickly. It can dry out very quickly. It can look a little bit limp fairly quickly. It can look strong fairly quickly. But when you go past those pine trees in the plantation those things are huge. They're imported from Portugal. They're, they're massive. Some of the trunks, I can't even get my arms halfway around. And they are strong and stable. And when the weather changes, you don't see a lot of visible change in the tree because it stood the test of time. It stood resistance, as somebody ministered about recently. It stood, it's been through all the seasons on the calendar again and again, and it's grown strong. However... There's a warning there because just because that tree looks healthy. You see, when one, what ha every once in a while you drive past that plantation, you'll see one of those massive pines and they've got bark like armor plating. And what happens is great when the tree dies, great slabs like man-sized slabs of bark come off and they reveal a core that is no longer a living tree, but it is gray and it's hard. Because, you see, even when you're an established tree, there still needs to be the little green shoots on the top. 
And we have to be careful because when we've walked with the Lord for a long time, we can be dying for a long time before it's actually visible. We need to have little green shoots as well as a strong trunk. There needs to be all of that life flowing through us. We need to be spiritually healthy trees. I mean, I was walking my dog through that plantation once when one of those trees came down not too far away and scared me half to death. Not too close because I'm still here. But Galatians chapter 5, and starting and reading verses 22 and 23, continuing in that idea of fruit, and you know this passage, many of you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such there is no law. In other words, when you produce those things, you won't be breaking any laws. You'll be pleasing God. Amen. And we could spend a whole lesson on those fruit this morning, but we're not going to. But I'm going to read those verses in a modern translation, which might help some of us with what those words mean. It says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So those changing the, the, the words hopefully helps our understanding just a little bit. So as we grow, as we grow, these things will be produced in our lives as a byproduct of a healthy relationship with Jesus. Now, we can focus on particular fruit. If you are aware, if you read that list and you think, you know, you give yourself a score out of 10 for all nine of those, you know, if you give yourself 10 out of 10, you may need to have a chat with a friend just to balance that. But if you are aware, if you say, well, you know what, I really lack gentleness or I really lack long-suffering, there's nothing wrong with deliberately making an effort to try to see those things produce in your life. But your effort alone is not going to make it happen because fruit is a product of healthy relationship. And so we have to have a healthy relationship with Jesus first, and then if you add that focus to it, you're likely to see more fruit come from that. If you are walking in your flesh and you just think, well, hey, I need more of this fruit, you can push as hard as you want. You're going to be in your flesh. If you read the verses before that in Galatians, you'll see what the works of the flesh are. But when we have a healthier relationship with the Lord and we desire to please Him, those fruit are a byproduct of that relationship. We need to realize as well, and you may not have seen this before, that the fruit of the Spirit are not simply ways that others can see the goodness of God in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit are also a powerful part of spiritual warfare. What is the number one way that the devil tries to attack saints in the church? Get between us, amen? Offenses, issues, struggles, conflicts. And so when the devil tries to do that, but we're producing the fruit of the Spirit, instead of anger, we respond with peace. Instead of being foul-spirited, we respond with joy. Instead of having a short fuse, we, develop, we demonstrate long-suffering, etc., etc., etc. When that happens, we render His efforts powerless. So we have to understand the fruit of the Spirit is also a part of spiritual warfare because the issue is dealt with before it has a chance to take hold in our spirit and try to sink its roots down deep in our hearts. The writer of Hebrews said in 12 and 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. If it cannot take root, 
it cannot spring up. We need to understand that. Now, why does the devil utilize this method? Because it defiles many. It's effective. It's destructive. And he's not wasting his time with things that don't work. But if we respond to his efforts by the power of the fruit of the Spirit, because we have the Holy Ghost in us, we kill it before it grows. Amen. It's powerful. Amen. We're moving on to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to spend much of the rest of this lesson here. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's interesting, there are quite a lot of lists in the Scriptures, and we should pay attention to those lists. There's lists in the Old Testament of things that God hates. Good list to pay attention to. We just read one list from Galatians. There's another list in Galatians. There's lists all through the Word of the Lord. But 2 Peter chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read... Uh, about nine or ten verses here and then and then come back from the piece at a time verse three says according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us unto glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, or the better option, brethren, is give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is a fantastic passage of Scripture because it challenges us, but it's also packed full of promises. Amen. God has given us the power. It starts out by telling us, if you could go back and put that first slide back up, please, Brother Daniel, the first slide of that passage. Thank you. Just try to stay with me. God has given us the power to have all things in our lives that are a part of the life and goodness that comes from Him. He has given us everything that is necessary to have what He wants us to have in our lives. And our knowledge of Him, we talk about knowledge and we'll repeat this, but our knowledge of Him both through learning and relationship reveals to us and in us His glory and excellence. And we are given incredible promises that if we take hold of those promises, we escape the corruption of our old lives and we can partake or we can share in His divine nature, which means that He wants us to become like Him and He has given us both the promises and the power to bring that to pass. Now, that's awesome. If He had just said, I expect you to be like me and left us to work that out, we'd be lost we'd be hopeless but he's not only said this is an opportunity but he's given us the power 
and the promises to see that come to pass. I'm glad that God doesn't ask us for things that are beyond us. They're beyond us in the natural, but when we're filled with His Spirit, walking according to His Word, and He says, you can be this person, we need to have confidence that if He said it, it can happen that He can change us, that He can turn our lives around. And when you believe that He can't, you are listening to the wrong voice. Amen. Because He wants us all to grow. Amen. Amen. The beginning of verse 5 is very significant. It starts off by saying, and besides this, or we might understand that with this in mind, and for this reason, we are instructed then we are to give all diligence. I want to stop on those three words for just a moment. We are to we are instructed to give all diligence. We we must first very clearly understand that you and I do not provide the power. We do not provide the power. We do not have excellent moral virtue of our own. We do not give ourselves promises. Well, you might have made promises to yourself. You've probably broken them as often as you've made them. But all of those things come from Jesus. The power, the virtue, and the promises. He is the source of all of those things. But, there's a but here. We are required to apply ourselves. To give all diligence. That speaks of investing ourselves in the process. We are required to give everything we have to the process, to what He has made possible. To be direct or a little bit blunt this morning, each one of us is personally responsible for our own spiritual growth. Each one of us is responsible to give all diligence to this purpose, to make the effort. Now, God puts gifts in the church to encourage us, to assist us, to care for us to preach, to teach us, to counsel us, to, to all of those things, God provides them. But the choice to eat, to digest, and to grow is yours and mine. We have to make that decision personally. We can help one another, but you cannot live for someone else. I cannot, I cannot say, here, have my faith. You have to have your own faith. You have to make your own decisions. And we need to be reminded that there is never a shortage of provision. The question is always around appetite. What do we want to eat? He provides for us. Even when it's difficult, the psalmist said, He prepares a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. God will always nourish your soul. He will never leave you hungry. If you're feeling hunger spiritually, it's because he's saying, I've got more. Come sit, dine with me. He's not going to let you become malnourished. If you are spiritually malnourished, it is because of your own choices. It is because of the decisions that we make. He has put it in us. He has told us. He said, I am giving you the power. I am giving you the promises. But you have to bring the diligence. You have to bring the application. You don't have to be a superhero. You don't have to be the strongest person in the church, the super Christian. You have to be like the church in Revelation at Philadelphia. Thou hast a little strength and has not denied my name. We are to take that little strength, and we all know what it feels like to only have a little strength. 
But we are to take that little strength and give it with all diligence. Amen. We must never, and this is a tragedy, tragedy and a travesty in modern Christianity, we must never misunderstand grace to think that we simply sit back and God takes over and we are some kind of spectator in our transformation. It's not like you take, you take your car to the mechanic and just drive in and go and sit in the coffee shop. We are involved in the process. We are required to make choices, to put our faith in Him and in His Word, to see His promises come to pass. We are, Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. It does not say you are saved by grace full stop. There is faith that makes grace effective in our lives because grace is extended to everybody. But not everybody takes their faith and applies it. When we we have faith, that means that we believe the promises. That means that we apply the instructions. That means that we pursue what God wants us to with the grace that He's made available for that to happen. It is we we never ever take away our own sins. We never ever can save our own souls. But Paul constantly spoke of pressing towards of reaching forward, of wanting to apprehend something. He spoke of running with patience. He spoke of enduring to the end. He spoke of fighting a fight and so on. All of those can be condensed into giving all diligence. You are responsible for your spiritual growth. And then you might say, well, the, the, you know, this could be done better at church. This program could be better. This could... And all of those things are true, but they are secondary. They are to assist you. They do not replace your relationship with God. When you stand before the Lord, if you've, let, if you've failed Him and walked away, you're not going to be able to say, well, you know, you know, I didn't really like the youth group. Or, you know, the pastor, I would have much preferred a different pastor to him. You know, I didn't like the way I thought things were too long, too short, too loud, too quiet, too whatever. You know, we all have those opinions. That is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you are responsible for your own spiritual walk and your own spiritual growth. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, but I don't think I can. That's a lie from the devil. He that has begun a good work in you shall perform it. Unto that day. Amen. But you, your will, see this is the problem with predestination. It removes our will. Your will is definitely involved in your salvation. Amen. Bless the Lord. So to give all diligence is probably a, a slogan that we need to apply to ourselves as wanting to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And so establishing that there is our part in this process. With that diligence, we are instructed to add several things to our faith. Faith is the foundation. That's where any interaction with God begins. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Amen. So you, you've got to start with faith. If you haven't got faith in God, the other things, uh, let's get in the cart in front of the horse. And faith, when you read the book of James, faith is only observable by actions and responses. Again, it's not about things we do to save ourselves. It's about when I believe, I will obey. It's about trusting Him. So just like the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians had a list of fruit, 
Peter's writing to the church with another list and he is expecting us to work at adding these things to our faith. And the first thing on the list is virtue. Virtue includes in its meanings moral excellence or living a life that is pure and holy. But virtue also includes the idea of fulfilling your intended purpose. You might say, you know, what is the virtue of a knife? A knife is to cut. That's its purpose. So when we think about virtue, yes, we do need to live a life that gives God glory and honor, but we also need to fill our purpose. What is our purpose? It is that we become like Jesus, that we reflect Jesus. That is our purpose. And that cannot be separated from living a moral and a holy life. So it's, it's a moral, pure and holy life, but it also is the fulfilling of our purpose. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but it is important to note that there is a purpose for the order of the things in this list, in this passage. There is a purpose, and you can have a look at that in your own time if you want to. But don't think that you have to get 100% on the first thing on the list before you can progress to the next because most of us will never have 100% of anything in the list. So we'll all be stuck in entry-level class for the rest of our lives. There is a reason. We may touch on that a little bit, but there is, they are things that we should be all desiring to have and giving diligence to having. Amen. Our giving diligence never stops. So we are to add virtue to our faith. We are to live a life that pleases God, that honors God, that reflects God to the world around us. Amen. And then after we add virtue to our faith, we are to add knowledge. Now knowledge, we mentioned this already, but knowledge includes both to know about Jesus, but also to know Jesus in a relationship sense, in an intimate relationship. You get into the meaning of the words know in both the Old and the New Testament. It's, it's not talking about all in your head for an exam. It's talking about intimacy or relationship. And I believe that when we are motivated with a right heart and a right spirit, these two ideas of knowledge and relationship will actually promote and provoke one another. The more I know, the more I learn about Jesus in an educational fashion, the more I want to have a relationship with him. The more I have a relationship with him, the more I want to learn about him. And the two should promote one another. And that's why, you know, you, you're not, you, you can't be a word person or a spirit person. They're inseparable. So knowledge and relationship go together. So as the, the closer I draw to him, the more I want to understand him and learn about him. The more I learn about him should drive me to want to be closer to him. They should work together. And so when we think about knowing God, it should have both of those angles involved in our understanding. Amen. And after we, we add knowledge, we are instructed to add temperance. Who's got temperance fully sorted out? Temperance is usually understood to mean self-control. In the context of our relationship with Jesus, temperance means that by the power of the Holy Ghost, we are in control of our natural carnal desires and behavior and we are not controlled by them it is a paul wrote in first corinthians 9 and 27 and the, the context was a part of his he talked about running a race to win the race and in 1 corinthians 9 27 he said but i keep under my body bring it into subjection lest that by any means 
when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said, I discipline my body. Disciple and discipline. You're a disciple, you've got to have discipline. You can't take that away. You know, we, I've, I've mentioned it before, but in, 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 you know, there's, there's a language that's not officially recognized, but there's a language called Christianese, which is words we use in Christianity that don't actually exist. We talk about discipling people. There's no such word as discipling people. The word discipling is not in the dictionary. The word is disciplining. But we don't like to use that word because we all think about the wooden spoon. <laughs> so, we t- so we use discipling because it's, it sounds... It's like unforgiveness. You know there's no word in the English language for unforgiveness? The word you need biblically is bitterness. Unforgiveness is not in the dictionary, at least not last time I checked, unless there's been an update. But see, we use words to say things, to try to communicate things. And that's, that's not necessarily wrong, but, but you cannot be a disciple without discipline. Paul said, I keep my body under. He was using that example of an athlete. We're in the middle of the, the Olympics at the moment. You don't get to the Olympics by deciding last Thursday afternoon, hey, I might run the marathon next weekend. There's been months and years of dedication, of commitment, of sacrifice, of watching what you eat, of listening to somebody tell you what you're doing wrong. You need to change your stride. You need to change this. You need to change that. There's been a whole life of commitment to that process for one event. And that is a wonderful reflection of where we are. Our lives right now are committed to one event. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Amen. That is what we are committed to. So that when we stand before him, I don't care if I get gold, silver, bronze or aluminium, as long as I'm there on the podium in some place, when we get to the end, a disciple must be disciplined. Amen. We must. Temperance, a lack of temperance can destroy our walk with God. Amen. The next thing on the list, which I'm sure none of us feel like we've got completely squared away, is patience. We often joke that you shouldn't pray for patience because just like every other part of our walk with God the Lord doesn't download it while you sleep if you say God help me to be patient he's going to give you somebody or possibly somebody's depending how badly off you are to produce that fruit so be careful what you ask for you may confuse the Lord you asked me for this and now you want me to take it away make up your mind but we need patience. Patience in our Christian walk has to do with endurance. It has to do with being able to withstand opposition, to resist the devil, to go through trials as we are required to. It means that we trust in God regardless of circumstances. Last Sunday night, I taught from Hebrews chapter 10, and the verse that really got me started on that was Hebrews 10.36, where it says, For you have need of patience that after you have done the will of God you might receive the promise right there is why we need patience in the interim we do the will of God because we want to receive a promise amen we consider we are considering sorry that the idea is that a disciple is someone who is growing when you think about natural growth what is one thing little children don't normally have a lot of endurance and patience You ask a three-year-old to wait, they think that means for about two and a half seconds. And they've waited. They're done. I'm finished waiting. I want what I asked for. We have to learn 
patience. We have to grow. You cannot expect an infant to have a lot of patience or endurance. Amen. Disciples must grow in exactly the same way. The next thing we are to add is godliness. Godliness at a basic level means being like God. But for us as disciples, it's a part of our growing. That meaning can be expanded to including the idea of having a God consciousness in all areas of our lives. We do not have separated compartments in our lives. Your life is not made up of little boxes that God is allowed into some of and not into others. Godliness means that he is considered in every part of our lives. Amen. Spiritual growth brings with it a realization that God requires that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All areas of our lives are filtered through the idea that we desire to please him and that his will needs to be the guiding factor and the principles of Scripture are applied to all situations. You know, that's the powerful thing about a scriptural principle. When you make a rule, humanity will always look for a loophole. That's why there are so many lawyers. You can go to court having committed a crime, but if they can find a loophole, you can get off. But a principle is inescapable because a principle can be applied to every situation we face. That's why we not only look for the commandments in the Word of God, but we also look to understand the principles so that we can say, what would God have me to do? There is a principle for every situation in our lives. Amen. We do not dust off our faith on a Sunday morning and bring it to church, but we need to have, you know, where it's been at the back of the water all week, but it needs to be Jesus that is at the center of our universe. You know, there was a time in history when those that studied such things thought that the earth was the center of the universe and not the sun. And they had to learn that, no, we are not the center of existence. We revolve around something. And much like that, our flesh believes that we are the center of the universe. But we have to learn that He is the center of our universe. Amen. Next thing on that list in First Tim, in Second Peter, sorry, is brotherly kindness. This is more than simply the kind of kindness we might show to anybody as part of being polite. You know, you go out, you try to be well-mannered. You know, as Christians, we need to be very conscious of our witness in society. You go to the grocery store, you should always be polite to the staff. When you go through the checkout, you might have that person that seems to be stuck in slow motion. Be kind to them. You know, if something, if, if you aren't served well or there's a problem with something, don't be quick to be that person that complains. I mean, there's a place for communicating when something's not happened, probably particularly if it's cost you money. But we need to remember, we leave a residue wherever we go. We need to demonstrate these things. Brotherly kindness is a matter of the heart and is directly connected to the second commandment, which is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And brotherly kindness goes together with the last item on the list, which is charity. Most modern translations would translate that as love. It's the kind of love that God has towards us. And these two things, brotherly kindness and charity, are deliberately at the end of the list that Peter has given us because it is the demonstration of these qualities that Jesus said would be a signpost to others that we are his what? His disciples. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. So there is 
something of a flow in this passage of Scripture that is happening. And I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but virtue or that fulfilling of our purpose with moral excellence flows into our knowledge or our understanding of Jesus, which should then produce temperance as we discipline our natural selves. Patience is produced as we acknowledge godliness in all areas of our lives, and together these flow into brotherly kindness and charity as the completed demonstration of growth and maturity in Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 to 48 says this, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans. So the world likes the people that likes them. You know, if you've got a friend that always brings you gifts or is handing out money or, or is just, you know, always so good to you, it's easy to love that person. In fact, you want to keep them around. It's the people that they just, you know, they grate you the wrong way. They just, that neighbor that you hope isn't in the driveway when you go to take the bins out so you don't have to talk to them. They're the ones that require the fruit of love that comes from Him. Amen. That's why in verse 48 there it says, Be ye therefore perfect. So he's saying the kind of love the publicans have is imperfect. But you are to be perfect even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The challenge of perfection here is not to be faultless, but it speaks to us of growing into maturity. Verse 48 of Matthew 5 in the Amplified Paraphrase says, You, therefore, will be perfect, growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values into your daily life as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's a great breakdown of that verse. Amen. And then when we get to the end of our text that, that Peter wrote, we get back to Second Peter chapter 1. Verses 8 through 11, it says, For if these things be in you and abound, they shall make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacks these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if these things are in us and they're abounding, we're healthy and fruitful, they're continuing to grow, we will be fruitful in our walk with Jesus. If we don't have these things, then we've taken our eyes off the bigger picture, forgotten where he saved us from and how blessed and how privileged we are. But again, that expression is there. If we give diligence and do these things, we shall never fall. Now, let me stop on that statement for a moment. This is not a statement of unconditional eternal security. If you're not familiar with that expression, that is the doctrine that once you have been born again, it doesn't matter what you do, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. You can go out and rob banks and do whatever, but because you've been born again, your, your seat is booked on the plane. That's a wonderful concept, and I'd love to tell you it was true, but it's not in the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that we can become castaways. Otherwise, why did Paul say that? So when we talk about never falling, the word fall is, is it's, it's talking about if we're doing these things, there is a deliberate choosing to walk 
in the direction of Christ to pursue his character in our lives and to demonstrate his nature. And that word fall in a lot of other versions is translated as stumble. You won't stumble. And again, that's not speaking of a flawless life where you never get anything wrong, but it's speaking of the end result. It's speaking of the final outcome. It's saying that if you will continue in these things, if this is your direction, if these are the things that you are giving your diligence to, you will make it and you will receive the promise. That's what that verse is about. It's not saying that, you know, you can do whatever you want. It's saying if this is how, if I'm living and I'm giving all diligence to add to my, my faith virtue and knowledge and patience and the other things I'm not going to try to be able to remember, my direction is what matters. You don't need to be the fastest person. You need to be going the right way. If we do those things with all diligence, we will receive the promises. Amen. As we wrap this lesson up, I hope that we're challenged to be his disciples and to be people that are growing. But why is growth important? Why can't we just keep it simple and stay infants and have everybody bring us a warm bottle of milk whenever we're hungry, change us and take care of all of our needs? Why can't we just stay like that? If we go back to our natural examples of growth in the human body, There are things we can easily relate to. Because when they're in the natural body, when there are problems in growth and development, those problems have an impact on life. Now, if the problems are severe, they can lead to much struggle and difficulty and even shorten the length of a natural life. The less severe developmental problems can interfere with an individual's capacity to lead a mature and a fulfilled life in areas such as relationships, natural maturity, independence, the ability to complete education and advance employment and professions. Now, these things do not change the value of an individual in any way, but they can certainly place a restriction on their lives. And so coming back to the spiritual comparison, when we do not grow spiritually, It affects our relationships with Jesus, with others in the body of Christ, and with society as a whole. It also impacts in areas such as we're not able to handle adversity. We need an awful lot of extra assistance. We do not enjoy a consistent walk with God and will struggle on the roller coaster effect that that produces, driven and tossed like a wave on the sea. And even though God has placed gifts and callings in all of us, they are realized, they will not be realized rather or fulfilled because we do not have the growth, consistency and maturity required to see those things glorify the one who put them in us. We spend our lives in an ongoing fashion needing to continually receive and not really being able to give. And so growing as a disciple is powerful in that it produces stronger believers whose salvation is more assured and who become able ministers in the kingdom of God. That's why growth is so important. Let's stand together.